surprise first thing in the morning. Pastor Steve always says the nine o'clock crowd helps the, makes the world run, and I think you are also the best winter drivers. Thank you for being here this morning. We are in week eight of our Believe journey, and hasn't it been good? I think every week has been so good, and as we read along, I hope you're reading along at home, and you listen to the um, messages, and you hopefully participate in a small group. It's been a good journey. The first five weeks, we explored what we believe about God, how he has revealed himself, and our relationship to him. So we talked about God, about a personal God, about salvation, about the Bible, and our identity in Christ. And two weeks ago, we made a subtle shift. Did you catch that? We shifted from beliefs about God and my relationship to him, this vertical relationship, to this horizontal relationship in Christianity of how we relate to one another. And we talked about the church. And then last week, Pastor Dave talked with us about humanity, seeing us as God sees us. And it was an excellent part one to what we're going to talk about today. So if you missed that one or any of the others, go back to the podcast, to the YouTube channel, and listen. It will be well worth it. So let's jump in. If I believe that God is God and he is personal... And the way to have a relationship with this eternal and personal God is through salvation, as the Bible tells us that it is. And if I believe that the Bible is the word of God as it declares that it is and as historical evidence testifies that it is, then I can know that my identity does not have to be based on my sinful humanity, but through salvation, I'm identified as a child of God and now a member of his family called the church. If that is true, then the attitude of my heart should reflect the attitude of my father's heart, and his heart is filled with compassion toward all humanity. So the question before us today is this, is my heart filled with compassion for all humanity? That's what we're going to talk about. If you read along in the Believe book on page 128, it starts chapter 8, and it gives us our map. I love how they do that. They kind of say, here's where we're going, and at the end they say, here's where we've been. Let me read it to you. All human beings are valuable to God, and he calls us to see people as he sees them. Compassion goes a step farther by compelling us to feel their pain. Compassion literally means to suffer with. God calls us to come alongside people who are suffering. It doesn't mean we can fix their problems, but it does mean that we can enter their pain. Before we act or practice this belief, we must believe it. It's God's call on our life of all Christ followers. When we believe this in our hearts, we will show compassion to all people especially to those in need. And this is not a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do thing. Christ demonstrated this for us, and God himself is merciful and full of compassion. This is where our journey into compassion starts. Can I pray with you? Lord, we ask this morning that you would tune our hearts, our minds, our ears to hear what you would say to us about compassion. We thank you for the example you have shown through Christ and through all your interaction throughout your word, your example of compassion and mercy. So we focus our attention on what you would say to us this morning. Amen. Boaz's story. Oh, we're going to tell Boaz's story today, not Ruth's story. Sorry, Ruth. 
We're going to tell it a little bit from Boaz's side. We just read, the Meller family read us part of the book of Ruth, and it's not a long book. I read the whole book to one of my kids at bedtime last night. It didn't take very long. It's a beautiful story of redemption. But when we read it, we read it through 21st century individualistic North American lens, and sometimes we can kind of miss the point. It's a love story. It's romantic, we say. You know, a beautiful young woman is swept off her feet by the wealthy landowner, and they get married, and they have a baby, and they live happily ever after. Well, those things, I think, do happen in the story. We don't know if she's beautiful. I'm just putting it out there. But it might not have exactly been that way. And I want to suggest to you today that this is actually less of a hallmark story and more of a story of an old man whose consistent obedience and acts of compassion play a part in God's greater plan to redeem humanity. That didn't sound very hallmark, did it? But here's what we know. We read the book of Ruth. The story starts, Naomi and her husband Elimelech, we read that part. They have to leave their home in Israel because there's a famine. They take their two sons and they go to Moab, which is a neighboring country and also an enemy in the past of Israel. Tragedy after tragedy hits this family. Elimelech dies In the meantime, the two sons marry Moabite women, which I think is kind of against the rules, and then eventually both of the sons die. So here Naomi is left, no husband, no children, and two foreign daughters-in-law, and nothing. She's got nothing. She's got no one to carry on the family name, and then she hears that things have improved back in Bethlehem, and, and it's been at least 10 years since she's been away. She's vulnerable, she's desperate, and she goes back. And Ruth is the daughter-in-law who is determined to be loyal to her and comes with her. She says those famous words, wherever you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, and I will die where you die. Well, in those days, and in the culture in the area, the prospects for widows were very bleak, especially if they had no children to take care of them or to inherit their husband's property. So they're left to a life of poverty and often even things like prostitution because they had no providers and no protectors. They were the most vulnerable in society. But in Israel, God's law to Moses had provisions for them, for widows, orphans, and foreigners, strangers. They had provisions through things like gleaning. We saw in the story how Ruth goes out to glean. Well, what is it? It just meant that the harvesters were by law prohibited from going back and collecting the little bits that dropped. They had to leave them for the poor to come behind them and pick them up. That was their social assistance program. They would come behind them. So there were provisions in the law of Moses for that. So in the story of Ruth, Ruth goes out. They don't have anything. Naomi says, okay, you can go out. Go glean in the fields. And then there's this wonderful statement. We talked a lot about this at our staff devotions this week. In Ruth verse, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, And as it turned out, Ruth was working in the field belonging to Boaz. Surprise! By chance, Ruth ends up in Boaz's field, who is from the family line of Elimelech, Naomi's husband. Ruth doesn't know that at this point. So who is this man, Boaz? This is who I want to talk about, actually. There's a lot of details that we're not told. We can infer some things from the text, but some of it would be speculation. But we do know he's well-established, and he's a wealthy businessman. We know he travels. He has fields. He has workers. He's not the one working in the field. He's not even the supervisor in the field. He is the big boss who's coming to check in on things. So he's a wealthy landowner. He's stable, 
it's, it would appear that he did not have to flee the country when the famine came, so he had to have been well enough off to survive that period. He's respected in the community. He's of good reputation. We see this in how his workers respond to him. And later in the story, when he sits at the gate with the other men to make some decisions about property purchases, we see he's following all the rules and he's got a good reputation. He uses his means to help those in need. He's helping Ruth, but it's not the first time he's helped somebody. His workers didn't react strongly and say, what, are you, what do you mean we should leave things for this woman? He probably did this all the time. He's a man of his word, and he speaks blessing over and over again. If you go read the book of Ruth, he speaks blessing to his workers, and then he speaks blessing over Ruth again and again and again. And all this would suggest he's an older man. He even addresses Ruth as my daughter, and it commends her for not running after the younger men. So he's an older man. He's not Ruth's age. We don't know. He actually could have been widowed himself. It's possible. That would be um, speculation to, to say that. But here we find Boaz. He is living by God's law. He's conducting business honorably and providing for those that he's responsible for. He knows the law, and he's following it. He also knows Naomi's story because he's in the family. He knows what happened to her husband, Elimelech. We don't know what the relationship was, if they're cousins or what, the, what it would be. And he's also heard about Ruth's reputation, her reputation of being so loyal to this family that she married into, so loyal to her mother-in-law and such a hard worker, the workers tell him. So there's this idea in the family that was alluded to, or actually mentioned, this guardian redeemer. Naomi says to Ruth, Boaz is field. He's one of our relatives. He is one of our family redeemers, guardian redeemers, or in the old language, kinsman redeemer. I still think of it in those words. The Hebrew word, it's a legal term. It's a legal term for the one who has an obligation to redeem a relative in serious difficulty. You can go back into Leviticus 25 and read about this. Throughout the Old Testament, the Lord keeps reminding Israel. I've had a reading plan that has me a lot in the Old Testament right now, and all the time, he's reminding them, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out of slavery. And we wonder, why does he keep telling them that? Don't they remember? Sometimes they don't. But over and over again, He institutes laws like this one so that the Israelites don't become slaves again. The kinsman redeemer, the family redeemer, was one of those things. Because if someone was so destitute, they might be forced to sell themselves into slavery to survive. God didn't want them to become slaves again. So he said, no, there's going to be a system so that when something happens, like to Naomi, and she has no husband, she has no heirs, someone in the family is going to come along. They're going to pay her for the plot of land that belonged to her husband, so she's going to get that money right away, but they're going to buy it on her behalf, which means that they don't actually become more wealthy by doing this. They buy it on her behalf. She gets the money, and then every year, she gets produce from that piece of land that comes to her that she can live off of. So essentially, they've just paid her, and then let her keep earning off of the land. So it was a way to, to save them from, from things like slavery again. So knowing all this, Boaz comes into the scene. He understands all these relationships. It's not the way that we would arrange things, for sure. If, no, if Naomi had just come back by herself with no daughter-in-law, she, by her own admission, is too old to have children again. So the kinsman redeemer could have come, paid her for the land, that would have been the end of it. He wouldn't have had to marry anybody. But because she brings Ruth with her, 
And Ruth is still young enough that she could potentially have an heir to Elimelech, and Malin was her husband. Then it gets, it's a more complicated deal because now the guy who's buying the land, he's not just agreeing to buy the land for Naomi, he's also agreeing to marry the widow, Ruth, and have a child who will not inherit anything of his, will not carry his name. That child will become the heir of, of Elimelech. This is not the way we plan our marriages or think about how when we'll have kids, right? It's so foreign to us. But this, was the, this is how it worked. They were going to have an heir to carry that family name and to keep the family provided for. It was a legal obligation. Remember that. So then we see this such a romantic scene when Ruth comes by Naomi's um, instructions and, and kind of, she kind of proposes to Boaz and says, would you please be my kinsman redeemer? Marry me. And he says, well, actually, there's another guy. He's closer in relation than I am. So let's go talk to him. And if he decides he doesn't want to marry you, then I'll marry you. How's that for a proposal response? Did you know that there's another guy that might be interested? But that's how it went. But Boaz follows all the rules. He doesn't do anything sneaky. We can only, you know, it's just conjecture to say Boaz falls in love with Ruth and Ruth falls in love with him. Maybe that happened. We don't know that. But he wasn't being sneaky about anything. He goes to the men at the gate and he says, look, you're a closer relative than I am, so I should let you know Naomi's selling this land. Do you want it? Yeah, I'll take it, he says. He says, and by the way, when you buy the land, you also get the widow, Ruth. Oh, well, that's kind of complicated. He says, no, no thanks, you do it. Boaz wins by default and marries Ruth and then rescues her from all those things that she had been known as. She is no longer a vulnerable widow. She is no longer poor. She, as a foreigner, has been brought in. He literally gives Ruth and Naomi their lives back. And they they get married. They have this baby, Obed. But Obed does not carry on Boaz's family name. He carries on Elimelech's heritage there. But Obed, Obed, isn't this interesting? Obed becomes the father of Jesse, and Jesse becomes the father of David, and David is in the lineage leading down to Jesus. It wasn't just a little romance that by chance made it into the Bible. It's God showing us how his great plan of redemption continues despite poverty, despite injustice, despite all those things, he is still at work. And how people like Boaz, who knew God, knew his commands, and followed them, play a part in marching God's plans forward. Our key verse is Psalm 82, 3 and 4, and this is what it says. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. This is actually a cry to the Lord to do these things. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Uphold, rescue, deliver. We see all these things in Boaz's obedience, in his acts of compassion towards Naomi and Ruth. God wants to bring his salvation to the whole world, and his heart is for those in need who don't have power or voice. So maybe Ruth is a love story, but I think it's also God's love story of saving the widow and the foreigner and embracing them into his line. 
Boaz models this through his consistent acts of obedience and compassion as he follows God's law. So our key question for the day is, what about the poor and injustice? What is my responsibility to other people? I want to ask you first, first of all, why would we even respond to anyone else in compassion? I think it has to do with our view of two things. I think it has to to do with our view of value. Am I valuable? Are you valuable? Why are we valuable? We've just talked about those things in our identity in Christ and in God's view of humanity. We are valuable because he created us and because we are created in his image. If I carry that value and you carry that value, then you're worth investing in. You're worth pouring into with compassion because we are valuable and it's a level playing field in that sense. We all carry that value. Secondly, I think it has to do with our view of brokenness. Do we believe that we're living in a broken, sinful world and that our lives have been affected by brokenness and sin? If we believe those things, then I think we act to restore when we can restore. At the, at the beginning of the lockdown, there was a song that I kept hearing going around, Is He Worthy by Andrew Peterson. And at first I didn't like it. It was so repetitious. I would just switch. But then I started listening to the words. Do you feel the world is broken? We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? We do. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. And he just, over and over again, he taps into this awareness of being part of a broken, sinful world around us and our desire that it be made whole again. And then in the culmination, is anyone worthy? It asks. It culminates with this triumphant, he is. If we believe that we're valuable because of he made us and we belong to him and we are in his image, and also that we are in the context of a broken world that is longing to, for his redemption, those are all our motivations to reach to, to someone else in compassion um, as he has reached out to compassion in us. So no one is above anyone else. The value is an equal playing field. Living in the same broken world is an equal playing field. And here's one more thing about brokenness. I was thinking about this. When we suffer, when we go through suffering ourselves, when we go through pain, when we go through loss, it stretches our hearts. The pain and the suffering, it's, it's hard and it stretches us. But you know what? It stretches our hearts in a way that allows compassion to grow. Because suddenly we can identify with someone else's pain. So that would be my word of encouragement to you today. If you are in a time of suffering, of pain, of loss, God is stretching your heart and your capacity to extend love and grace and compassion to others in need is going to grow because of this season. So what's my responsibility to other people? Well, as followers of Jesus, we're compelled to be drawn to other people through compassion and mercy, becoming like Christ for the sake of others, not living in a self-serving world. If we don't believe that there is a God and we don't believe that he's personal, then yes, it makes all the sense. Just live for yourself and forget about everyone else. But if you do believe those two things, then following through with love and compassion for other people is the next piece. 
The Apostle James, a brother of, of Jesus, wrote in James 2, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? And Paul writes to Col- the Colossians in, thir- in 3.12, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Here's our key idea, and if you don't remember anything else from today, remember this part, okay? I believe God calls all Christians to show compassion to people in need. We're going to break it down into three parts. All Christians are sent with compassion to all people. All Christians. Aren't you glad that this is a command to all Christians and that it's not just all your responsibility to save the whole world? And by the way, did you know that there already is a Savior for the whole world? So that job's been taken. You don't have to be the savior of the world. Jesus is. So now he's freeing you up to show compassion because all Christians are sent. In chapter 6, I believe, uh, okay, I don't know how political you are or if you watch the news, but this week was exhausting for anybody on any spectrum, right? It's just like so exhausting with all the political news. In chapter 6, I believe, We learned, thank the Lord, that the government is not the organization God is going to use to be the primary dispenser of his love, grace, and justice. Isn't that great news in any political system, in anywhere in the world? I love it because they're all broken and they're going to fail. But God's, God's plan is that the church will be the primary way to accomplish his purposes on earth today. So if you're a Christian, that means you. And that's the way he's going to do it. So all Christians are sent. And we're not sent alone. We're part of the church. And you know what? We don't do what we do for a tax deduction. We don't do it to earn our way to heaven. We do it because we are overwhelmed with the love of Christ, and we simply want to love those he deeply loves. We're compelled because he has loved us first. We have received grace that leads to us extending grace. We have tasted mercy that leads to us extending mercy to others. We only do what we have first received and first tasted. So first of all, all Christians are sent as part of the church. And how are we sent? How do we respond? I'm afraid to say that oftentimes we respond like this, with pity. We just feel sorry for somebody who's in need, or maybe with guilt. We maybe feel bad that we don't have those same needs, or that we don't really feel like helping them. Maybe we respond in anger. Maybe we're mad at the government for not taking care of these people. Or maybe we're angry at these people because they don't take care of themselves. Or maybe we just respond with superficial action. Maybe we write a check or we turn the channel or we just make it go away. We think about other things. All Christians are called to be sent with compassion. What is compassion? Compassion is love with an attitude. It's an attitude that's willing to suffer with others, to suffer alongside others. When our hearts are changed, we can respond in compassion instead of in anger, in pity, in self-righteousness, in guilt, or in apathy. Here's some definitions of compassion. The phrase to be moved with compassion, which we see in the scripture several times, carries the same idea as our modern expression from the bottom of my heart. It's a deep feeling. Compassion is sympathy coupled with a desire to help. 
So it's feelings, but it's feelings with action. Compassion is an entry point. It's the willingness to come alongside, not necessarily fix. That's a hard one because we want to fix. If we can't fix something, we want it, we don't, we're not interested, right? Well, what's the point? What's the point if I can't fix it? But compassion says the point is the come alongside, the journey with, the feel with, the enter into a mess. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see God described as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Nehemiah writes about him like this, Moses, Jonah, Joel, David. And usually it's, it's followed by, uh, you know, you understand the context, a stubborn people have turned away from him and we're reminded he's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. Am I gracious in my speech and in my attitude towards those in need? Am I compassionate? Am I slow to anger, patient even when there's no turnaround, even after my compassionate actions? Am I rich in love, giving freely, expecting nothing in return? I think this is where the real challenge lies for us. I don't think the question for us so much is, can we be moved by compassion? I think we can. We all can. Or even, will we respond with compassion when, we need, when there's a need? Most of us will respond in some way. I actually think that's the easy part. The hard part is, will I continue to act in compassion, extending Christ's love, even when there's no visible change in the recipient? Even when my actions don't fix the problem, will I keep moving towards them with compassion and love, staying in relationship with them to the best of my ability? Do I stop when a person who is scarred by sin, living in a world broken by sin, responds in a broken way? Or maybe they don't respond at all. That's the moment when I will know if I'm doing this out of my own pride and my own arrogance, out of my own goodness of my heart, or if I'm responding out of Christ's compassion and grace. Because if I'm responding out of a response to his compassion and grace in my life, then he will be enough to strengthen me to do this again, even if the results are disappointing by my standards. And again and again. It comes from the overflow of his love and mercy in my life, not just out of my own attempts to be a good person. So all Christians are sent with compassion. The final part is to all people. So who are we supposed to be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, sympathetic, and loving towards? The answer is everyone else on the planet. Oh, here's a simple answer. Everyone. Absolutely everyone. Jesus gives a fabulous example in the Gospels, of course. Christ's compassion knew no boundaries. He felt the needs of all classes of people, all kinds, He felt the needs of the crowds that followed him hungry and were scattered, the sinners, the demon-possessed, the prostitute, the adulterer, the thief, the sick, the blind, the leprous, the suffering, those who had suffered great loss, like the widow who loses her son and he brings him back to life, and the seeking ones, like the rich young ruler who had everything but didn't know how to respond. Jesus saw them all well, what difference should this make in my life? What difference does it make in the way that I live? Well, I truly believe that it's not enough to just believe compassion is the right answer. It must become a way of life, like it was for Boaz. Boaz didn't just suddenly one day become a rescuer, a deliverer, and show compassion. 
he had been practicing it by following God's law all along. And then when a situation presented itself where there was a known response of how he should respond to, to the situation, he just did what God had already told them to do. He just kept being consistent in what he knew and in following God's laws. It becomes a way of life. I want to tell you two quick stories as we wrap up. I'm very thankful that I have had personal examples in my life of generosity and compassion in obedience to God. I've seen that in my parents. I've seen that in my grandparents and many other people as well. And I remember this one time, I don't know how old I was, maybe 10, 11, 12, somewhere in there, and our family, my parents were missionaries in Guatemala, and at the time, it was the 80s, buying vehicles in the country was always tricky, and so it was easier or more cost-effective, I don't know, you have to ask my dad, to bring country, bring vehicles out from outside the country, from the States or Canada. And so we had this need, no vehicle, and then suddenly we found out as kids that somebody in Canada was giving us a car. And so they made all the arrangements. I think it was my grandparents who drove it down and met dad and brought it through Mexico and everything. And we got this car. And in my mind, I could only imagine how every wealthy Canadian had cars lined up in their driveway just ready to give them like this person gave this car to us. Wow, Canadians were so rich. And then the next time we visited Canada, we were traveling around visiting people like we always did. And dad would always try to tell us who these people were that we were staying with because we never knew them, even our relatives. And we, the one day he says, oh, this family that we're going to go visit, they're the people that gave us the car. And I thought, wow, I can't wait to see their house. It'll be like cushy carpet and everything. Carpet meant you were wealthy, by the way. We didn't have carpet. And we got to this property and they lived in a very tiny mobile home. And I was shocked. And I found out later that at the time, I don't know how long after this was that they had given us the car, but at the time they gave us that car, it was their only car. And they were responding in obedience because God had put it on their heart that they should meet that need. So they weren't giving out of abundance. They were giving out of sacrifice and obedience. That changed the way I thought about Canadians in general, but also about being obedient to meet a need That was crazy in my 10, 11, 12-year-old mind. I still think it's amazing. Examples like that, I'm so thankful for. The second story, this is not my story, but you'll be able to relate to how it ends up, I think, for many of you. In 1952, there was an evangelist named Everett Swanson, and he went to South Korea to preach the gospel to troops in the Republic of Korea's army. And during his visit, he was deeply moved by the number of children who had been orphaned in the war. He discussed the issue with a missionary who then challenged him and said, you've seen the tremendous need here and the unparalleled opportunities in this land. What will you do about it? In effect, the missionary was saying, are you going to just feel sympathy for these children or are you going to express compassion? So Swanson returned to the United States and along with his wife, Miriam, and the help of Dr. Gus and Helen Hemwall, a ministry was launched on behalf of these Korean orphans. At his revival meetings, Reverend Swanson began to share about the needs of the Korean children. Christians began to donate funds to help meet daily living needs. By 1954, the sponsorship program still offered Today Was Born, whereby people could give a monthly gift to help provide food, shelter, medical care, and Bible instruction for a specific child. 
1963, Swanson was becoming a little bit uneasy about his name being the focus of this growing ministry, and so he was inspired by Jesus' words in Matthew 15, 32. I have compassion for these people. I do not want to send them away hungry. So the ministry name was changed and is now known worldwide as Compassion International. What began as a missionary's challenge to an evangelist who saw a need is today still a vital ministry that serves more than a million children in more than 25 nations. It started because of a response, not just a feeling of compassion, but then the next step, hands and feet, to that feeling of compassion to meet the need. When the Christian belief of compassion is coupled with that motivation to act on those feelings, that's when compassion is truly in action. So here's a simple assignment. The next time you feel compassion well up in you inside, let it trigger action in your hands and feet to be Jesus to the least of these. We've talked about this for a long time. You can start with just blessing someone. You can spend time with them. You can meet their felt needs as you discover them in relationship, or maybe you meet them because of their need and the order is different. That's fine. And as you grow in that relationship, you will have opportunity to declare that the kingdom of God is here. Psalm 82, 3 and 4, we read it once, let's read it again. Defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. So, how can we respond right away? Well, you can respond. Maybe you want to just start by asking God to give you a heart of compassion. Maybe... You think, I feel those feelings every once in a while, but that's all that happens. Maybe you're well experienced in that, and you already know how to move into action. You can also refuse to ignore somebody that is in need, especially the orphans and the widows. And I think in modern-day times, that's our single moms and their kids often. They might literally be orphans as well. You can give financially. We always try to help give opportunities for that, and you showed that as well with the, with the food drive and those way. We have a benevolence needs fund. You can give that way. I actually think it depends on where you're at. For some people, this is the hard one. Opening your wallet's the hard one because you're like, can't I just do something for them instead? But maybe that's the easy one for you, and the hard one for you that would be more of the challenge is to give of yourself, give of your time, your energy, where there is a need. Maybe that's reaching out to a neighbor or helping with blank ministry at Hillcrest Care, blessings to others, connecting with newcomers when we bring food for refugees. There's all sorts of things. So we're going to take a moment and we want to pray. And maybe as you've been listening today, you've had one of a couple of responses. Maybe you've just been like, wow, I see how God has shown compassion towards me and I've never actually received his compassion before. I want to receive his compassion and mercy in my life so that I can respond like you're talking about. Maybe today is the day of salvation for you. I'd like to pray with you right now if that's the case. If today would be the first step that you would move into becoming part of this, the church, the body of Christ, you could pray something like this. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin and shame. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. 
Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you're just becoming part of the body of Christ, you're on an exciting journey, and we want to hear more about that. But I suspect for most in the room, you're a follower of Jesus already. You're already part of the church. Maybe your response has been, yes, thank you, Lord, that I have always consistently been obedient. That's amazing. If you're a Boaz, we want to bless you that you've been consistently responding in compassion and obedience. But maybe your response has been, yikes, I guess I maybe I need to take seriously my responsibility to take action, not just to feel feelings of compassion, but to take action as a follower of Jesus. And maybe you actually need a little moment of confession and repentance, and I would love to lead you in one as we close right now. You can modify this as it applies to you. Don't pray something that doesn't apply to you. Use your own words. But would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I confess that I have ignored those in need around me, or you fill in the blank of what it is. I repent. I repent of my self-centeredness, individualism, whatever it is that he puts his finger on. Lord, today I choose to cooperate with you as part of your church in meeting the needs of those around me with compassion. Help me respond quickly to your Holy Spirit's promptings. Amen.